1: to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. We've got a lot to talk about today. Cody Bellinger is hitting over 400 and earning every bit of it. Mike Soroka has been shockingly great. Uh, The Red Sox are bouncing back. We've got some interesting data on the opener. It's been now a year since the opener has been used, kind of. And uh, we launched some new pitch movement leaderboards at Baseball Savant today, like literally 10 minutes ago. And we're going to explain what those are and how those work. But first... Cody Bellinger, this is probably the first time in the history of this show I've ever opened with a look at this guy's batting average. No, uh, but even I am not so cold and jaded. I cannot appreciate a guy hitting 405 through the middle of May. Cody Bellinger is hitting 405, 485, 791 through 194 plate appearances. Uh, That's really good, obviously, but we should point out anytime we're talking about a guy hitting 400, we have to talk about Ted Williams. Uh, Cody Bellinger's OBP in this stretch is 485. Ted Williams' career OBP 482 in nearly 10,000 plate appearances. Hot take. Ted Williams was really, really good at this. Um, But what I thought was interesting here was, you know, you see a guy hitting 405 and you think, well, you got to be good, right? But you got to be lucky. You got to have a lot of balls bouncing in. And that's both true and not true. I think his batting average on balls in play is 405. That's not going to last. But. If you look at his expected numbers, expected based on launch angle and exit velocity and strikeouts and walks, he has a 3.94 expected batting average a 4.05 actual average. He has a 7.46 expected slugging percentage, a 7.91 actual. That Matt says to me, he is earning most or all of this. I mean, we know he's been great, but that really shows that the skills have been
0: there too. And you don't you don't expect a guy with his build like the tall lanky guy like the guy I've always he's always reminded me of is Daryl Strawberry just that kind of profile the tall fast athletic outfielder but you know Daryl Strawberry even at his peak struck out a lot even in an era when people didn't really strike out that much so with Bellinger you sort of assume well you know he's like six foot five and he's gonna have this big looping swing and his swing kind of like visually when he hits those majestic home runs kind of has that look but um to hit 400 for six weeks when you have that 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 body type in some ways almost makes it more impressive i
1: almost think six weeks is maybe underrating it because the season started in late march this year so he's almost up to, to two full months um there was an interesting quote he spoke to jared diamond of the wall street journal about you know what changes did you try to make uh and he essentially said i stopped trying to hit the s out of the ball every single time which i guess makes sense you know some guys do need to swing out of their shoes to get the ball out of the park but Cody Bellinger is a pretty strong and powerful guy. He just needs to make more contact. Uh, and he has. He has the largest drop in strikeout rate from last season to this season. You know, minimum 400 plate appearances last year and 100 this year. Uh, he has dropped by almost 10%. He also has the sixth highest drop in ground ball rate. He's down from 40% to 30%. And he has the sixth highest increase in hard hit rate. He is up 13 points over last year's hard hit rate. Uh, that's None of this is surprising, right? Strikeout less hit the ball harder, hit the ball in the air uh, and good things will happen. But what's kind of cool is, uh, you know, as you sort of alluded to, he's not just a hitter. He's an all around good athlete. Like he's playing very good defense. Uh, He's got plus three outs above average and that's tied for the eighth best uh, in baseball. He's already topped uh, 91 miles an hour on a couple of throws from the outfield and he's really, really fast. He has a 29.2 feet per second sprint speed. uh, That league average is 27. So he's tied for 19th in baseball. He's faster than guys like Malik Smith, Harrison Bader, Fernando Tatis Jr., and our friend and colleague here at mlb.com David Adler wrote something that I thought was pretty cool uh, that you know Matt I know you read about how he's using that speed to kind of keep up this average.
0: Uh exactly. So based- Cody Bellinger it's 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 not just that he's fast. He's really really fast. He's basically one of the fastest guys in uh in uh in baseball. And if you haven't read David's piece, you should because it's really smart, but I'll also kind of summarize a little bit of it. He basically showed that this year, you know, four seconds is sort of considered like a fast time from home to first, for a batter to get from home to first. That in 2019, Cody Bellinger leads the majors in the most times getting from home to first in under four seconds. He's done it 12 times. No one else has done it more than eight times, which is kind of amazing. Kevin Kiermaier's next. Not surprisingly, a lot of left-handed speedsters are on this list, but he's got the most 12. And of those 12, five of those have led to infield hits. So if you're wondering... How is he staying up above 400? Well, part of the secret is that he's actually like, you know, stealing some hits with his elite speed.
1: Yeah, I saw that in uh, David's piece, and I thought that was interesting. So what I did was I looked at how much value he has added on ground balls. So his expected batting average on grounders is 298, which for ground balls is pretty good. And his actual batting average is 381. He has added 83 points of average. Uh, that's not the most. It's 20th best, but out of 282 guys who have hit 25 grounders. So that really does go to show that, yes, he's crushing the ball, uh, but he's got speed and he's really using it. Like, I think you sort of just unintentionally defined a hustle metric. Like, we don't have that. But when I see a guy who has this many, like, four se- sub-four-second home in the first times, uh, that's sort of what it says to me.
0: Yeah, exactly. And we'll, I'll leave one more uh, – one more uh... – Stat to kind of, you know, bring it on before we move on to our uh, next exciting topic is that if you look at the fastest max effort home to first times, this is basically like the top 10% of a player's runs. Cody Bellinger ranks fourth in the majors ahead of Billy Hamilton and Jared Dyson. Like it's you don't think of him as being that fast, but he's on the short list of fastest players in baseball.
1: I'm going to leave you with, uh, I guess, uh, two more Cody Bellinger takes. The first one is a funny one, and the second one is a serious one. I guess funny is sort of depending on your perspective. He already has 4.2 wins above replacement at Fangraphs. That is the most in baseball, unsurprisingly. Uh, The entire San Francisco Giants outfield since 2016 has 4.0 wins above replacement. That says a lot about both sides of that argument, (laughs) I think. Uh, The other thing I wanted to just mention is uh, a metric we don't talk about super often is called sweet spot percentage, and it's launch angle. And the way to think about this is, you know, we have. Uh, When we talk about exit velocity, we say anything over 95 is a hard hit ball, so we can say hard hit percentage. Launch angle is a little different because it's not always true that higher is better. You get too high and you start hitting pop-ups and that's bad. So we have defined a sweet spot as uh, between 8 degrees and 32 degrees of launch angle. And then you can say, well, how often are you hitting the ball in that zone? Uh, As you would imagine, that zone is really good. 80% of home runs are in that 8 to 32 degree range. The majors hit about 600 with almost a 1200 slugging percentage. Number one in baseball at hitting their batted balls in that 8 to 32 degree range, Cody Bellinger, uh, ahead, of, ahead of Jose Martinez, Anthony Rondon, Lou Voigt, and somehow Kurt Suzuki. That was the one yeah. that was you a got two Nationals
0: in the top five, and they're not really having a very good year. Well, kind Rondon of <laughs> is, at least. but
1: um, And it, it's interesting because you know we're always talking about elevate, elevate. Uh, Bellinger's launch angle is down from 16.8 degrees to 16.1 to 13.8. And I think that in this case, that's a good thing. He's hitting fewer ground balls, and his launch angle is lower which means everything is in that sweet spot.
0: When also he's also a player as we've noted to bring it back to the speed one more time when he's taking line drives unlike most sluggers he's turning singles into doubles and doubles into triples whereas most guys it's either like sing- a lot of guys it's like singles or home runs. And he's crushing the baseball Yes, exactly.
1: I did not realize I don't think fully until Matt pointed this out to me this morning. Uh how good Mike Soroka of the Braves
0: has been. He's been Unbelievably good. Seven inning, uh, seven starts, one oh one ERA. Yeah, there's been so much focus, I mean, rightly so, on the some of the rookies in the National League. Chris Paddock for one, Pete Alonso, Alex Verdugo, Fernando Tatis Jr. before he got hurt. But Soroka, I guess because he started the year in the minors and sort of like well, he was hurt, right yeah, he, he was hurt. That's what it was. Yeah, he, he didn't um, his spring training. Uh, sort of flew under the radar, but now, but both he and Paddock pitched um on the West Coast last night, and they both pitched really well, but. Uh, if you had to pick NL Rookie of the Year right now, after last night, it sort of feels like Soroka is right there. We just did our, our balloting on MLB.com, which as you can see on the site today. And I think that if we voted again today, the voting would look a little bit different. Soroka already got um, – three first place votes and that was before he took a perfect game into the sixth inning last night and threw eight uh eight innings of one run ball against the uh, giants to to bring his era to 101
1: i uh, i left him off my ballot. i voted like four days ago so i think i had i had paddock first alonzo second verdugo third and i would have had Tatis, but you know he's been missing time and now you're right i'm gonna have to think about uh mike soroka he has made seven starts he has not allowed more than one earned run in any of his seven starts which is really incredible uh he he uh You know, pitched against the Giants last night, as you said, uh, took a perfect game deep into the game. And he is kind of interesting because he doesn't blow you away with velocity. You know, his fastball is 93 miles an hour. It's like mid-range, you know, throws, sinker, slider, four-seam change. Uh, But there's something cool about his changeup, and this kind of is a a foreshadowing what we're going to talk about later when we're talking about new pitch movement leaderboards. His changeup has an incredible amount of horizontal break. It has an average break of almost 15 inches and that is more than four and a half inches more than the average break at his velocity and release point that is the fifth most among qualified change-ups that thing moves and it's been good a 125 average against a 188 slugging against and you know he also uses that changeup to get ground balls if you look at the guy's who have uh, the highest ground ball rates with at least 40 innings. Number one, I didn't realize this until today, Luis Castillo. He's striking at everybody and he gets ground balls. That's not fair. Uh, Dakota Hudson, Marcus Stroman, who's been pretty good, and Mike Soroka. Uh, Bruce Bochi, whose team got destroyed last night by Mike Soroka, uh, talked to Chris Haft of mmb.com, and he kind of explained it. He's like, he's got deception. He's got that changeup that's quite a bit slower than his fastball, 12 or 13 miles an hour. Uh, that's a tough pitch, and I think we know that changeups are more than just about movement; it's about how they play off the fastball. Uh, and all four of Soroka's pitches have above-average outcomes, but I think it's the changeup that really stands out the most.
0: In many ways, he's similar to Chris Paddock. In, like I've been thinking about this, we've talked we talked a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, about Paddock, and he has that sort of like unique repertoire where he has three pitches that are very different in speeds and and angles, and he's not the – when we think of, like, young aces up and coming, and you know, Paddock throws a little bit harder than Soroka, but, like, um, we think of these young aces generally coming up now, they're all, like, flamethrowers. Now we've got the two best young pitchers in the National League this year who are – really more, like, dominating with their changeup and the fact that they can really mix three pitches. The uh, Pitching Ninja did, like, a really good Soroka gif. You should go check it out, where it basically was like, how does anyone hit this 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 sorcery? I, I don't know. Paddock seems angrier, right? Like, he doesn't throw 102, but he certainly seems happy to put he has, that fastball he in he does the, has the swagger, but the point is he's not he's not coming up and throwing 99 and blowing you away. It's definitely a little bit more of a... Uh, there's a finesse to it, which you also get from, from Soroka.
1: Yeah, and while we're talking about the Braves, uh, they're four games over 500. Two and a half games out behind the Phillies. And in the month of May, they have the 12 wins tied with the Cubs for the most in baseball. And their rotation has always been kind of a moving target because they had a lot of injuries and a ton of these young pitchers. Right now, it's kind of solidified into Mike Fultanevich, Max Fried, Kevin Gossman, Julio Tehran, and Mike Soroka. And that has pushed Tuki Tucson and Sean Newcomb to the bullpen. And I was kind of surprised when I looked this up today. Sean Newcomb in the bullpen has been awesome. He made three starts in April in 12 innings, five strikeouts and eight walks. That's bad. And in seven May relief appearances, eight in the third innings, eight strikeouts, no walks, no runs. His fastball has jumped up by almost two miles an hour, uh, from ninety-two point nine to ninety-four point five. We've seen that a lot. And when he talked to our Mark Bowman about it, he said, "Getting sent down lit a fire under me. Going out to the pen, you're only going out there for short spurts. I don't think they necessarily want to end his starting career, but their bullpen's been kind of a mess,
0: and he looks awesome." Exactly. You 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 put the put the the head. Like the bullpen's been terrible. So yeah. like having him there, especially with the development of Sorokin, Freed, who have been. Like, Freed, another one of these young pitchers who's not really dominating with strikeouts, but sort of has a the great breaking ball, ball yeah. inducing a lot of soft contact. The rotation suddenly looks a little bit more stabilized, and with with Nuka back there, I looked this up, he and Ryan Presley are the only pitchers in Major League Baseball with at least 50 batted balls in play who have not allowed a barrel as, you know, a barrel, as a Stack has defines, as, like, a, a sort of, like, a perfectly struck uh, baseball. So that's pretty good company to be in this year if you're a reliever. Ryan Presley. <laughs> um, Ryan Presley and Sean Newcomb. So the Braves are suddenly looking interesting. They've been hot. Acuna's getting going. Uh, two home runs last night. Two home yeah, runs yeah. last night. It's um, they're, um, it's starting to look... The NL is starting to look like it might be a two-team race after all.
1: Not necessarily the two teams I think I would have thought at the start of the season. Um, I still have... Maybe I'm foolish. I still have some hope for the Nationals because of the talent there, but I don't know. It's not looking great.
0: You know, the in the in um, there was a – Joe Sheehan wrote a piece in his newsletter about a month ago, and he, he picked the Braves to finish first. And the, the point he made about the Braves that I thought was interesting at the time and now looks, I'll say, pretty smart, was he basically made the point that, like, yes, I know that the Nationals and Mets and even Phillies are much better at the top of the rotation, but he was like, the Braves have, like, 11 guys who I'd feel comfortable starting a game Game, we count the guys in the upper minors, like 11 guys I feel comfortable starting a game for me tomorrow, which is not the same. The same cannot be said for the Nationals and the Mets, and I think you're seeing some of that right now. The Braves sort of had to mix and match with the rotation, and now they might be finding a formula that they like. Now it's a matter of sort of figuring out the back of the bullpen. If Newcomb is a, becomes a mainstay in Tucson, and maybe – it's still, I still kind of feel like at this point Kimberl's going to end up there, but we'll it see. It seems
1: like the most obvious fit. Are you feeling better about the Red Sox? After their rough start? Because I would say I'm feeling better about the Red Sox. <laughs> um,
0: yes, the Red Sox have, you know, speaking of sort of like, uh, you know, don't overreact. To, no, no team has shown not to overreact to a slow start more than the Red Sox this year, who after a extremely slow start are basically back in playoff position already. If not, they're going to pass the Indians any day now. And um, they're a half game behind the Indians right now. They have a plus 32 run differential, which is better than basically every, all but – Two teams in the National League, um, much better than the Indians. There, three teams in the, the East are going to make the make the postseason. It's just yeah, a matter of right. like which which ones in which which order. I,
1: I was going to say that I don't know which two of those three teams are going to play in the wild card game, but it's going to be two of them, uh, and it's going to be awesome. Especially now that you know the Angels just uh, had some injuries with Simmons uh, and Otani. I'm mostly writing them off. Nobody in the they, West is any good outside of Houston. You know, Cleveland will have a say. Minnesota will have a say. Um, but I really feel like it's going to be two of these three. I a- mean,
0: teams. I mean, the Minnesota's just kind of running away with that division. I mean, I don't want to say it's over, but um, they look very strong and it, Cleveland still has dealing with the injury woes. Um, yeah, the Angels were starting to look a little bit perky, but now with those injuries and pitching is a mess. It's. But uh, the Red Sox, they look like like the Red Sox we thought they were going to be. The Red
1: Sox in April had the 20th best or 10th worst hitting weighted on base in baseball. And they had the 25th best or fifth worst pitching weighted on base in baseball. Everybody on earth knows about the annual Chris Sale Velocity Death Watch. And that's what we spent all of April doing. The Red Sox in May have had the second best hitting weighted on base behind the Astros and the second best pitching weighted on base behind the Dodgers. They have really really been good and some of this i think was expected like okay monkey Betts got off to a bit of a slow start you know he'd be fine he looks fine uh but the only real lineup change they've made is at second base where they called a michael chavis chavis i guess i should know that but i think I don't. chavis uh, and the, he had never played second base before and he's basically been playing there since april 21st and he's been really good uh 389 on base 592 slugging he has nine home runs and they are all bombs he has of his nine home runs five of them are in the sixth longest Boston home runs this year, and this is on a team that can hit.
0: This was a guy that in the Arizona Fall League, where they do in—I uh, in, uh, remember when he was there, because we have— uh StatCast at uh salt river there was chatter about his exit velocity in the arizona fall league and he has really been fantastic if you look just at second baseman minimum of 50 plate appearances he leads all of them in weighted on base and expected weight on base how about this for a list top five in expected weighted on base among second basemen. Well, michael wait, chavis wait wait i want to think about this for a
1: second among second basemen, I, uh are you looking on savant because then it'll just be like while you're playing second base um so he's not split if you're like DJ LeMayhew uh, I'm not gonna guess you can go ahead. LeMayhew's on here.
0: Okay, well I guess he's been good while playing second base. He's not he's he's number nine. It goes Chavis, Lastella, oh yeah, Derek Dietrich, Danny Santana, Mike Mustakas. Oh. oh, then you get Jose Altuve, Brandon Lowe, Joe Panic, DJ LeMayhew, César Hernandez. I, man I forgot about Tommy Lasdell That's that's something but anyway Javis is really it's not just him but he's obviously like taking them to a to kind of a kind of uh taking them to a new level
1: And you know who has really stepped up is uh Rafael Devers. He, you know, he's young. He only turns 23 in October. And, you know, I got off to that great short season start in 2017. Last year wasn't actually that good. Uh, And this year, only four home runs, but he's hitting 314, 383, 451. Earlier, I said that Cody Bellinger had the largest strikeout rate drop in baseball from 2018 to 2019. And that's true. uh, But he was tied with Raphael Devers. And his hard hit is also up from forty one percent to fifty one percent, ninety third percentile. You know, again, only four home runs, but you look at the underlying metrics and his youth and uh he looks like absolutely the real deal. Now I guess I have to wear this next one here. I probably spent a lot of time this winter talking about how Jackie Bradley Jr. was not probably Mike,
0: you you did. Yeah. You did spend a lot of time.
1: I, I sure did. Um Jackie Bradley Jr. hit a home run yesterday. We should we should mention that. Now Don't overthink the fact that it came off of a 19-year-old Rule 5 pick for Toronto, Uh, but it was his first home run of the year, and if you were to go back to 1901, the birth of the American League, and you were to look at the lowest OPS plus, where 100 is league average, in qualified seasons, you would find that number three on the list is Jackie Bradley's 20 for this season. Um, The two seasons below him on the list, or above, number one and two, are by the same man, Bill Bergen who is on this list, like, what's this, seven times of the top 12? He is. He was a catcher in the early 20th century. Six, uh, six, of, the,
0: six of the 12 worst seasons ever yeah. by OPS Plus or by Bill Bergen.
1: Yes, uh, long known as one of the worst uh, hitters in baseball history. Um, not the most unfortunate member of his own family. If you go back through history, you will find that his brother, Marty Bergen, also a big leaguer, uh, murdered his whole family. So there's that. Bill has that to point that he did not do so far as I know. Uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. has just been a mess in every possible way he has the highest increase in ground ball rate from last year it's not what you
0: want he's the only player on this list compared the season is young i'm guessing by the end of the year jesse jackie bradley jr could get his ops plus maybe uh, up to 60 or 70 um but he's the only player on this list right here in the the 12 worst that you have um that's played since 1937 since 1937 (laughs) that's that's bad Uh,
1: but we all know how this is gonna end right He's going to be a mess for the first two and a half months. And then for like a six week stretch in August and September, he's going to be the best hitter in baseball. And we're all going to get sucked into this again next year.
0: Well, he's hitting ninth on a team that has like, uh, you know, eight guys raking. Even Christian Vasquez has been raking in May. Well, thanks to a
1: 5'14 batting average on balls in play. I'll take the under on that.
0: Um, But, um, you know, J.D. Martinez has been hanging well. You wrote about this recently that even he's actually – his expected weight on base has been better than it was last year, even if his overall numbers are worse. He had
1: just hit a bunch of, like, 410-foot bombs into the triangle – in Fenway, and that, that ate up a little bit of his slugging, and then he immediately started crushing the ball. Like I could not be less worried about J.D. Martinez. He is eighth right now in baseball uh, between Joey Gallo and George Springer and expected weight on base. He's going to be fine. He is fine.
0: Yeah, and as you mentioned, on the pitching side, Chris Sale looks like himself his last four starts. He had 10 Ks against Houston over the weekend. They they, they scored three runs, but if you can, hold, if you can strike out the, the Astros ten times and hold them the three runs, that's a win. Um, he had 17 against the Rockies, 14 against Baltimore, 10 against the White Sox. Well, that, well that's, that's what made the
1: Astros one so
0: important to me. Because the teams you just named, like
1: White Sox, Baltimore, the Rockies, those are not the most dangerous lineups. And then you get to Houston. That is actually a big deal.
0: Yeah, and it's, I mean, yes, he's not throwing as hard as he used to, but his velocity is now back up to, like, you know, 93, 94 as opposed to 95. The command is there. He's someone I could still think could be an effective pitcher, even if, if he's throwing 91, 92. I mean, you look at a guy like, Pat Corbin, who's sort of like a poor man's Chris Dale in this day and age, and he only throws like 91, 92. So it's, you know, Chris Dale has plenty of room, margin for error, and he's showing that, and he looks like his old self, and the Red Sox look pretty good.
1: Yeah, one hitter I forgot to mention real quick is uh,
0: Mitch Moreland somehow is top 10 in Hard hit rate? Oh, he, he, like, where did that come from? He's always he's always hit the ball hard. He's just been a guy that was easy to ship. He was a very very predictable spray chart, so if he wasn't hitting home runs, there wasn't much much, much room for the ball to land anywhere. Yeah,
1: uh, two uh, Red Sox relievers I just wanted to touch on. Uh, Matt Barnes has been fantastic. He's been kind of kicking around for about five years there, and he's taken on a much more prominent role in the last year or two. Uh, 35 strikeouts, four walks in 19 innings. He has a 231 expected weighted on base that is tied for 12th of 222 relievers with 50 strikes. Uh, 50 plate appearances. He's throwing 55% curveballs, up from 40% last year and 31% the year before. It's his best pitch. He should throw it a lot. That's what he's doing. And a name I'm pretty sure we haven't talked about on the show Marcus Walden, who I would be surprised if most people even know who that is. Uh, He turns 31 in September. And I don't think he's a rookie. I think maybe he lost that eligibility last year. He made his debut last year. This guy's been around. Um, He's a 137 ERA, a 30-6 strikeout to walk in 26 and a third innings. Uh, He was drafted by the Blue Jays in 2007. Missed most of a couple years with the shoulder issue, the Tommy John issue. Uh, Was actually promoted to the bigs in 2014, but never got in a game. How brutal is that?
0: He's got the, like, it's like the Ryan Harper
1: thing. Yeah, right. Waivers to the Oakland, waivers to Cincinnati. Got cut. Was an indie ball. Was a Twins minor leaguer, on and on and on. Got signed with the Red Sox, a minor league deal in December. 2016 and he has been really really good he has upped his slider usage from 14 percent last year to 43 percent uh he told fangraphs a couple days ago that two years ago he bought a Soto. that seems not unrelated uh and on that same list i said of 222 relievers with 50 plate appearances his 244 expected weighted on base is 20th for all the talk about the red sox bullpen they have two top 20 relievers right now and they're not the names that you would have thought of
0: uh yeah the red sox are um they're who they they are who we thought they were, and uh, it's now it's only a matter of time of can they get get back enough to win the division, and if not, will they just line up for sale to start the wild card game? Basically, why not? You know, why not? Uh, two other topics we
1: want to get to. I wrote about this over the weekend. It has been a year, sort of, of the opener, the Tampa Bay Rays on May nineteenth, twenty eighteen. So a couple days ago was the anniversary. They brought out Sergio Romo against the Angels. He struck out Zach Cozart and Mike Trout. And Justin Upton, the Rays won, and they have used the opener dozens of times since then. And other teams have used it too. And I thought it would be interesting now that it's been a year, like, okay, like, has it mattered? And I think the easiest and definitely incorrect way that people like to look at this is they'll look at Tampa Bay because they've used it the most and say, in 2018, before the opener, they had a 445 ERA. That was the ninth worst. And since then, they have had a 298 ERA, by far the best. The opener must work. That's a little unfair. It bypasses how amazing Blake Snell was down the stretch and how good Tyler Glasnow got and how good Charlie Morton has been this year. You can't just look at it like that. Uh
0: here's where we had some issues trying to do this. What's an opener? Like how do you define an opener? There's definitely there's definitely been a lot of confusion and obviously I realize this is like we're 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 like peak baseball nerd this is, them.
1: This is the StatCast podcast. We can get into the weeds here. But
0: it's like there's a lot of, you know, debate, you know, the, the confusion between a bullpen game, Johnny Holstaff, and yeah. the opener. There's a difference. The, cool. an, an opener is when you have a guy, you start the game, the intention is only for him to face, you know, you know maybe four to six batters, and then you have someone lined up to come in and face – Turn the lineup right. over a couple you, you times. You basically
1: want to delay your regular starter. Yeah, I, I feel like there's an important difference between that. But then you kind of get into intense, like, oh, that was the idea, and then our regular starter got lit up, and then would turn into a bullpen game. That's where it gets um, a little squishy. So anyway, uh, there were 308 games last year and this year where the starting pitcher got only six outs or fewer. But those are not all opener games, right? Uh, there's a lot of weird stuff that happens. Remember, Kevin Gosman got ejected for throwing at the Braves, and you know, Dylan Bundy gave up four home runs without a, uh, recording an out last year, and Taiwan Walker blood is out elbow and rain delays and all this kind of stuff so anyway the way we try to define this as it's got to be if it's an opener game the first pitcher the opener can't go more longer than two innings uh, or faces no more than nine batters and the second guy the headliner has to go at least four innings or face at least 18 batters that was pretty good Uh, and then I went through by hand and you know took out all the weirdo stuff like you know Trevor Bauer came back from his injury last year to just do like a warm-up start that's not the spirit of this uh so since Beginning of last year through Saturday, uh, or through Sunday, excuse me, I found 75 opener games. That's not that many. That's like less than 2% of games. Uh, 42 of those were from the Rays. The A's, seven, Rangers, six, bunch of teams, five, three, and one. Uh, I thought this was a fun fact. Two Tampa Bay games qualified as the opener. Before Sergio Romo last year, they were with Andrew Kittredge. I don't think anybody noticed because Sergio Romo had been in relief for, like, 35 years. That was a bigger deal than, you know—
0: Exactly, because, like, with, with, you know, a lot of these sort of, like, kind of, for lack of a better word, you know, kind of faceless relievers out there— you kind of like, oh, this guy's just like a reliever. He feels like a swing. I've never heard of him, so he's probably just like a swing man. They right. called the 40 guy they called up. Like, with Sergio Romo, the guy was a closer on a World Series winning team. So when it was, like, announced that Sergio Romo was going to start a game, it was kind of like, okay, this is a thing now. I remember him being asked about it afterwards. Like, you know, what was this difference? And he's like, you know, it's not
1: that different. You still go out and you still pitch. Uh, but the one thing he said was different. This stuck with me because I'd never thought of this until he mentioned it. He's like, the weirdest thing was when I got out on the mound, the mound was in great shape because I was the first guy on it and I'd usually there's hundreds of pitches thrown and there's divots and you name it so the question of has it worked is uh, it's hard because 75 games over a year is not actually that much um, and most of them are from the Rays like you can say when the Rays used the opener they allowed a 304 weighted on base and without the opener it was 287 but again it doesn't matter because you're not opening for Blake Snell and Tyler Glass now. you know you're your whole point is you're trying to make your back-end starters like a Ryan Yarbrough, for example, look slightly better. Uh, it's still a little you know, squishy here. Ryan Yarbrough, uh, who was their primary headliner, that's the second guy, the bulk guy, uh, had a 3.13 weighted on base as a headliner and a 3.20 in all of his other games. It doesn't really tell you that much. Um, Stanek, now I looked at all of Staneks games because when he comes in as the opener he can't possibly know what's going to happen behind him so i just looked at his starter reliever splits way better as a starter uh, 291 ERA 271 weighted on base 450 ERA 331 weighted on base as a reliever the i guess ultimately unsatisfying answer is this is all very inconclusive like i think the idea still has merit and you know it's maybe it's not the most aesthetically pleasing thing but i would probably rather see this than you know, some fifth starter throwing 105 pitches through three and a third anyway. Uh, I just don't, I don't think it's made that much of a meaningful difference yet.
0: No, I, I mean I think there's there's a lot of arguments to be made in favor of it, both in terms of strategy for winning games. You know, the fact that it hasn't necessarily shown up in the numbers it's, it kind of reminds me of the debate about the shift when people are like, "Well, BABIPs haven't changed, batting average on balls in play hasn't changed significantly, therefore the shift doesn't work." Right. But it's like, well, it's, doesn't, it's not entirely n- the point. Th- th- <laughs> not entirely the point. I think there's like there's some gamesmanship involved. Yeah. I don't think there's a an aesthetically pleasing aspect to it in the sense where like a lot of times if you have like kind of a a mediocre fifth starter or or swing man, whatever that comes in and they're facing a good lineup in the first inning, it can be tough to watch because they're like kind of afraid to challenge that they're facing a tough lineup. They're afraid to challenge them. You get a lot of, a lot of balls, a lot of fouled off pitches, the pitcher taking his time kind of worried like, Oh, can I get through the, I just want to get through the first inning against this really good lineup. Whereas now it's a little bit more of like, okay, we're going to go mano a mano. We're going to take a good reliever. We're going to start the first inning. We're going to come after you. And then maybe you bring in the, the sort of the 4A guy to, fit, to, to, to pitch a few innings, starting off with the middle or the bottom of the order. I think there's, there's, there's actually a uh, – it, it might be a more pleasing style of play. I also don't really get the idea that like, oh, you should have to start your best available starting pitcher first. I mean, in, in all other sports we see regularly pit players who are not the best come off the bench. You know, in basketball, it's common for the sixth man to be better than one of the starters. Or, you know, in football, it's like, oh, we have our third down back who specializes in coming in and no one's like oh that's no one thinks oh this this person is our best he should start yeah. it it's just like
1: i've heard people say like it it hurts uh the fan experience because if you get tickets to a game you look at who the starters are and they say well people aren't gonna you know come and see ryan stanick open for an inning and it's like okay but again he's not opening for blake snell you know it's like all due respect to i don't know jason vargas you're not exactly attracting fans either <laughs> it's
0: also it's like you know when you're a, when you're a really big band you don't need an opening act anymore <laughs> right. but, you know like <laughs> The middle of road so. bands need an opener. This is the same concept.
1: So has it worked? I don't know. Inconclusive. It's a fun strategy, uh, and I enjoy that it's... I
0: happy. think if the Rays are doing it, it suggests there's something to it. I don't want to okay. give them too much credit, but they're a smart team.
1: Well, I would like to know what has made Ryan Standick so much more effective as the opener than in relief, because that seems to be the biggest thing I've seen so far. It's one, one guy, uh, certainly. Finally, we have added something new to BaseballSavant.com, and uh, it's a new way to visualize something that you know you've always been able to find. People ask us a lot, you know, about pitch movement. How much did this guy's curveball drop or fastball rise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and there's a long history in this, and you can read it all in the article that I, I posted on MLB.com. Um, a lot of people, you know, Dr. Alan Nathan and, and Mike Fast and Jeff Long and all these people have been doing this kind of stuff for years, and you can find pitch movement at FanGraphs and Brooks Baseball, and everybody listening, I think for the most part, knows all this. Uh, the reason we wanted to do something a little different is because the way it has always been shown is a little hard to grasp. The numbers are generally not shown with gravity. They have gravity taken out. And then it's the numbers you'll see are how much movement is being uh, added compared to this, you know, inferred spin free pitch, which I think is a super hard concept for people to understand. It was hard for me to even just get out of my mouth right now. Uh, We want to show numbers with gravity. If you see a cool curveball that drops into the dirt, you want to know that it dropped like 58 inches. So, That's what we've done. We've presented all these numbers uh, with gravity. And remember, that means everything drops. So, for example, a fastball uh, drops from, like, let's say 10 to 25 inches. A curveball is more to, like, 30 to 50 inches. And I think that's a lot easier for for people to understand. You can actually see the sweeping uh, slider and say, oh, wow, that had, like, 15 inches more than a foot of break. That's all very good and cool. The difficulty with that, and I think the reason nobody did it this way before, is that if you uh, bring back gravity, gravity requires time. And you don't want to give the slowest pitches an advantage just because they had more time to break. Like these, the slowest pitches, uh, curveballs, Chris Bassett at like 68 miles an hour, it doesn't make it the best curveball because it's got so
0: much time. And that's the, I think that's the thing that's sort of like, that's the aha for me and sort of understanding this concept is like thinking about, thinking about those slow curveballs, thinking about the, the Rich Hill curveball, which is a good curveball, by the way, but it's just, it's a different kind of pitch than say, like, you know, your Noah Syndergaard curveball, you know? So it's like, you want to, so the the, the goal here is to try and compare similar types of pitches to other pitches at that velocity.
1: Yeah, we we, uh, internally referred to that as the uh, Barry Zito problem. You remember the old looping curveball? So what we did to solve that problem is we just compared movement of pitches against uh, similar pitches. And what I mean by that is anything with a velocity plus or minus two miles an hour, uh, and also within a half a foot either way of extension and release, because that's, that's really what the batter sees. And so I can give you some examples of how that works. And again, uh, check out the article, go to BaseballSavant.com. So if you wanted to know, for example, which curveball gets the most drop uh, compared to the league average, uh, this is a super satisfying list. Number one is, is Trevor Bauer. His average curveball drops 63.7 inches. Uh, and when you compare it to the other ones at his velocity and his release point. That's an extra nine inches. So that's number one. Nine inches right there. Uh, 16% added drop. I think that's pretty easy uh, to, to comprehend. The, the curveball names here, by the way, are, are great. Bauer's number one. Newcomb, two. John Chad. Newcomb, the, the, the newly dominant yeah. reliever. Tyler Chatwood and his high-spin curveball that he can't throw for strikes, number three. Seth Lugo, number four. Uh, I was a little surprised to see Joe Biagini, number five, but then Max Fried being number six uh, was great. So if you go through the list, you'll find some things that make a ton of sense. I think, just by the pitchers, you'd expect to see there. So, for example, were you to go see, okay, well, which guys on their four-seamer get the most added rise? Marco Estrada, number one, Sean Doolittle, number three. That's wonderful. Josh Hader, number five.
0: And usually there's a co- correlation with a high spin rate uh, with four-seam fastballs and quote-unquote rise. And, you know, we've talked about Marco Estrada on the show before, but it, he's a perfect example if you want to sort of try to explain to someone the rising fastball effect and, and spin rate. He's like he's like the prototype because he throws like eighty nine and he still has an effective four seam fastball. Yeah,
1: Doolittle. I was surprised as he actually has slightly below average four
0: seam spin. So we don't. He's kind of a unicorn with his, his fastball. We
1: don't measure uh, spin axis and direction that well, but my guess is that he has like perfect. He's like getting all of it, yeah. which, which is really cool. Um, I also really enjoyed well a couple of things here on on the curveball list. I was just talking about um ber- uh, drop, but you can also look at horizontal break and uh, number one on that list. Ryan Presley, who is awesome. He's got the highest spin curveball in baseball. As you said, he set the record for most scoreless uh, appearances in a row. He's at 39 and counting. Still going. Uh, And he has 17 inches of horizontal break. That is 11 inches better than the average. It looks like a slider. Now, this does get into a little bit of an issue with what do pitchers insist on. On calling their pitches, because we we had thought about kind of going like off the rails and not comparing to similar pitches of that type and just similar pitches. I thought that would get a little too confusing for people. So a good example of the effect that can have is if you go to the slider leaderboard, the pitcher who has the most added movement, uh, vertical movement, vertical drop on his slider is Zach Britton. His drops 54 inches. That is nearly 10 inches more than similar sliders at his velocity and movement. Here's the thing with that: that pitch looks like a curveball to me. The data says it's a curveball to me and Zach Britton is on the record saying it's a slider. So unfortunately for us, the pitch is a slider, but that's okay. I think this also kind of helps us pick out the pitches that uh, maybe don't smell right in terms of what the pitcher chooses to call
0: it. Yep, but it, that's always been one of the challenges of, uh, of uh, pitch classification.
1: Yeah, and then if you, uh, you go to horizontal movement on the slider, I'm so pleased by the top four names on this list. Number one is Chaz Rowe, king of the Frisbee slider. Uh, number two is Adam Ottavino, also king of the Frisbee slider. Uh, Sonny Gray, number three. And Kyle Crick, who I think Pirates fans hated that trade for McCutcheon. Kyle Crick's been really good. He's got the fourth most slider movement. And Brian Reynolds, who came over in that deal, uh, has also been really good in the outfield. So anyway, this is uh, it's kind of a new way to do these things with gravity. Hopefully, it makes a little more sense. And please go check out the numbers at BaseballSavant.com, also on player pages. And do let us know uh, what you think about it. This is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thanks for listening.